0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am pleased today to welcome Zachary Parolin, who is the author of Poverty in the Pandemic, Policy Lessons from COVID-19 from the Russell Sage Foundation. Zach, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. I appreciate it. Uh, So before we dive in and talk about the book, I wonder if you might tell folks a bit about who you are and what you do and how you came to this book.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. So I'm a researcher of, of poverty, social policy, inequality, and more. Currently, I'm an assistant professor at Bocconi University here in Milan. I'm also working closely with the Center on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University, where I was before moving back to Europe. And I've been studying poverty for seven or eight years since the start of my PhD. And for the first three or four years, this had nothing to do with the pandemic at all, of course, but. Uh, in 2020, when the pandemic hit, I was in New York at the time, and my colleagues and I at Columbia turned to each other and said, well, look, I mean, this is uh, a moment where we might need to think differently and think creatively about how we can contribute a data infrastructure to help to understand what's going on and what's going to be happening with respect to the economic well-being of households across the country in the coming months or however long this crisis lasts. So we altered our research agenda at the time to do a bunch of work that I know we'll talk about to try to be useful in the moment. And a lot of that material produced over the subsequent uh, two to three years forms some of the central arguments and evidence base of the book we'll talk about today. Perfect.
0: Uh, so I don't want to get us too, too deep in the weeds, but I wonder if we might start, for those who aren't familiar, um, talk a little bit about the federal supplemental poverty measure, uh, the least bad of the federal poverty measures, I think we can say, and then talk a little bit about, about what you all did by way of methodology uh, and and changing sort of uh, data gathering uh, that made it possible for you to to uncover some of the things that you uncovered.
1: Yep. So a a short introduction to the supplemental poverty measure. First, the goal with any poverty measure is to have some indication of whether a household or family unit's resources is sufficient to meet their basic needs. In other words, whether their income is above or below a certain poverty threshold. And the supplemental poverty measure relative to, let's say, the official poverty measure that some listeners might be familiar with, there's a couple things that are worth knowing first it includes all taxes and transfers even transfers that are in kind or near cash so we're talking about food stamp benefits for example or benefits from the snap program that type of resource is included in the supplemental poverty measure and income definition refundable tax credits like the earned income tax credit or the child tax credit benefits that many listeners might get at tax time that's included when we count income in this supplemental poverty measure. One other fact that might be useful to know is that the poverty threshold for the supplemental poverty measure varies according to living costs in a given area. So if you're living in Manhattan in New York City, the poverty line for you is much higher than if you're living in, say, rural Missouri, reflecting the fact that it's a lot more expensive to live in Manhattan than rural Missouri. But a Couple features of the supplemental poverty measure are worth elaborating on. And really features of any poverty measure in the US and abroad is that they tend to be produced once per year. They tend to measure annual income. So we would look at how much income did your household have in say 2020. And we would give you one indicator for that year of whether you were in poverty or not. And these measures are released with a pretty long lag. So the Census Bureau, for example, didn't release its 2020 poverty estimate until September 2021. And so it's hard with these measures to know in close to real time, how families are doing in a real-time basis with respect to their poverty status. So this is one of the features of the book and, and some of the work that I've done Uh, in the last three years with my colleagues from Columbia University is to introduce a version of the supplemental poverty measure that can be measured monthly. In other words, we are measuring poverty based on the income you received in the prior month. And we can release this measure in pretty close to real time. We call it close to real time. It's two weeks after a month ends. So to go back to that example before, when Unemployment spiked to around 19% in April 2020. We could put out an estimate of monthly poverty in May, in the middle of May 2020, to inform policymakers and the general public of the share of households that were likely in poverty the month before. And that monthly poverty measure forms the, a few of the analyses that this book features. Perfect.
0: Um, so let's 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 dive in. If you would talk a little bit about. Um, And you've got two chapters that dig into this, both in terms of income poverty, in terms of experience with job losses, but how does a person's previous experience of poverty prior to the pandemic, uh, as you argue, affect the way in which they experience the pandemic?
1: Yeah, so in broad terms, I try to separate our thinking on poverty in the context of the pandemic into three buckets we talked about the poverty rate a little bit. We'll talk about this more. But this is one perspective on poverty that's focused on current resources. How much do you have on hand right now? But there's another perspective on poverty that needs to be addressed as well. And that's what I call in the book poverty as a risk factor or this pre-existing risk factor that affects the likelihood that someone faces a life disruption like unemployment or a health shock, particularly in the context of the pandemic. And so in the second and third chapters of the book, I focus on not just poverty during the pandemic, but how exposure to poverty as far back as childhood would led individuals to a higher likelihood of facing a health disruption and a higher likelihood to losing their jobs in the initial months of the pandemic. So just to give a, a few findings from these initial chapters, if we just look at county level poverty rates and county level COVID deaths per capita... There's about 3,000 counties and across the U.S., just for reference. And if we map these out, we see that the county poverty rate prior to the start of the pandemic is a very strong predictor of a county's per capita death rate due to COVID. The more poverty the county had at the start of the pandemic, the higher the death rate. And in fact, the highest poverty counties in the U.S. had about twice the COVID-related death rate relative to the lowest counties, lowest poverty counties in the U.S. by the end of 2021. And for readers who might be uh, interested in some kind of comparison of how large this gap is, if you think of Europe and find the richest and poorest country in the European Union, let's say Luxembourg and Romania, the death gap between the high and low poverty counties in the U.S. is about equivalent to the death gap between high income Luxembourg and low income Romania. This is really large. I talked about county-level evidence here. There's individual-level evidence of this fact in the book as well. Let me say one more word on, on this with respect to employment. It's really a similar pattern, that if you entered the pandemic in poverty, you faced a significantly larger likelihood of employment. In fact, poverty was a greater risk for imp- losing one's job uh, in the first three months of the pandemic than parenthood, than gender, than race, ethnicity, than a number of other demographic factors that received a lot of attention during the, the initial months of the pandemic.
0: And in, in both of these cases, uh, uh, county level poverty, um, regarding, uh, uh, In both of these cases, you find that that poverty at the county level is a better predictor, even than age. Correct. Mm -hmm. That's right. So you know, of course, at the individual
1: level, the older an adult, the greater likelihood that if they got COVID, then they were going to fall victim. But if we look across counties, we can take into account the age structures of different counties, and again with respect to age, with respect to health insurance status, with respect to race ethnicity, with respect to population density, the one predictor that topped them all in predicting COVID cases and COVID deaths is the county's poverty rate. And in the book gets into more reasons of why poverty is so tightly associated with COVID related health risks. But the data are, are, are really clear that it was a dominant driver of experience in life disruptions from health to employment and more during the pandemic.
0: And this, I mean, unsurprisingly, we're talking about the United States, this also translates into patterns uh, by race. You talk a little bit about just sort of of what that connection is, how does that wind up playing out?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about poverty here and how it can be this risk factor for graded COVID-related health challenges. We also know at the same time that Black and Hispanic individuals in the U.S. faced a disproportionate share of COVID-related health risks as well. And these facts are all connected. We know that at the onset of the pandemic, Black and Hispanic individuals were far more likely than White individuals in the U.S. to experience poverty. And in the book, I can trace this back to poverty as early as birth and, and childhood, really, that Black families in particular have a much higher rate of childhood poverty or experience of poverty throughout their childhood than White individuals. And I can trace these, these different exposures to childhood poverty directly to some of the COVID-related health outcomes. And again, to understand why, let's, let's walk through a couple pieces of evidence. We know that, uh, let's, let's focus on Black versus white comparisons here. Black individuals, in, in part due to the, their larger pattern of poverty in the past, a feature of structural racism and policies that often make it harder for these individuals to get by, they were more likely to live in multi-generational households, more likely to work in some of these frontline or, or service sector type jobs at the start of the pandemic, more likely to have health challenges already at the start of the pandemic and less access to affordable health care. So for a number of structural features dating far back in the U.S. history, of course, individuals who entered the pandemic in poverty, which were disproportionately Black and, and then Latino, were faced an extra burden in terms of health challenges when the pandemic arrived. And the book gets into a lot of the evidence on that.
0: So let's... If we can turn our attention to uh, what it is that uh, government did to try to ameliorate the effects of the pandemic uh, and then talk a little bit about uh, what the, the impacts were. So tell us a little bit about or remind folks, I'm, I'm being optimistic here, uh, that people that these are going to be familiar, the, the CARES Act and the uh, American Rescue Plan Act. Uh, when were they enacted roughly? What did they do? And then we'll talk a little bit about the impact that they had.
1: Yeah, so a bunch of acronyms to to work through here, but we'll try to keep it pretty straightforward. And when when the uh, the, go back to spring twenty twenty, this is when pandemic first hits. The unemployment rate spikes to between fifteen and nineteen percent, depending how you measure things. Congress knew it had to step in and do something to protect the economic well being of the millions of households across the country experiencing job loss. So it passed what is called the the CARES Act, alongside a couple other pieces of legislation. And the CARES Act had massive implications for the poverty rate. Here, thinking about poverty as as current resources and how we measure poverty throughout the pandemic. It introduced massive expansions to unemployment benefit access, as well as unemployment benefit levels. Remember that for four months, the federal government was offering a $600 per week top-up to standard unemployment insurance benefit levels. For many low-income workers, this exceeded the amount that they previously gained from employment. And of course, this is a very particular time when we're not necessarily encouraging people to go back to to work, given the uh, context of the crisis as it was. then. on top of that, the government provided uh, stimulus checks. And what we can see in our monthly poverty data is that even though the monthly unemployment rate climbed about 19%, the highest rate that we can observe poverty actually declined from its pre-crisis levels as a direct result of these unprecedented policy interventions now fast forward you know by august 2020 those unemployment benefits had expired that stimulus first stimulus check was gone and then the monthly poverty rate had climbed back up to above its pre-crisis levels but let's jump a, a year ahead um The change of the presidency after the election, there's still a lot of economic turmoil. And in spring 2021, Congress passed the American Rescue Plan Act. Now, this, again, increased the the accessibility and generosity of those unemployment benefits, this time at $300 a week. It's another stimulus check, uh, increase in SNAP benefits and more. But one policy that we might talk about in more detail is the expanded child tax credit that for one of the first times in U.S. history made monthly cash payments available to almost all families with children in the country, regardless of their parents' earnings or employment status. And remember that this benefit prior to the pandemic, and actually now again that this that expansion expired, is typically only available for parents who are working. And so it otherwise, in other words, reaches, or sorry, other, in other words, misses some of the lowest income uh, households across the country. And we can talk more about that that policy, but just in, in short, I mean, it cut the monthly child poverty rate. It cut the annual child poverty rate in 2021 to the lowest poverty rate on record in US history. That's dating back to 1967, that was when we first have data. It cut food hardship, uh, increased consumption at in grocery stores and in childcare centers, and a whole lot more. But here we are today, 2023, those policies are, are gone. So this was temporary, uh, but it, they were effective when they were around.
0: Um, and before we sort of talk about what, where things stand now, and then turn to sort of policy lessons, um, the the other thing th- this is worth, I think, pointing out to folks who may not be familiar with this: the the pre existing and now current child tax credit is not refundable. Can you t- tell folks what does that mean, and why do I think it's important?
1: Yeah, when we say refundable tax credits, what are we talking about? Well. When you file your taxes, you might get something like the earned income tax credit that if it's refundable, like the earned income tax credit, not only is it offsetting some of your tax liabilities, but if that the value of that benefit is greater than what you owe in taxes, you actually get some cash back and it can be several thousand dollars in the case of the earned income tax credit. The child tax credit... When, when it was made fully refundable and available to nearly all families with children was essentially providing cash back to families uh, at tax time, but also uniquely in uh, the context of the 2021 expansion. It also provided us benefits on a monthly basis, advance payments more or less, for, for six months between uh, July and December 2021. And so the idea that this is refundable and essentially universal for families with children means that uh, in the context of 2021, about 90% of families with children were getting direct cash payments through this expanded child tax credit. And again, for six months, it was on a regular basis. And then the rest of that, uh, that tax time.
0: And and benefiting those very low income households who often are, are, oddly enough, although, again, not for the United States, perhaps, uh, often excluded from from those those programs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a statistic I put out at the front of the book when we talk about the, uh, the, the American welfare state prior to the crisis and, again, what it is today. But if you just look at a, a jobless, let's say, parent with two children or two parents with two children, whatever, you look at the income support that they are generally able to get and it is far less, in some cases, about half the value of what a parent working at minimum wage with two children can get. In other words, our welfare state is, just, is designed to give more money to people who are slightly better off. Its purpose is to encourage work and to try to incentivize uh, parents uh, and uh, individuals in general to enter the labor market and buy in stable employment. But at the cost of strongly penalizing those who, for whatever reason, aren't able to find stable employment, and that is where that full refundability and that universality of the 2021 child tax tax credit really changed temporarily the way that our safety net treats the the lowest income families across the country.
0: Yeah, and it's you know worth pointing out that uh, the majority of of those who are are not working are are not, not, are not, not working. I'm, I'm getting lost myself. The, the reason they're not working is not because they're lazy or they don't want to, right? There are other things going on in their lives or their family life or with their health that, that prevent them from accessing the labor market. And we know that, that, that the odds are that they will return to the labor market when circumstances make it possible. So we've created this enormous sort of set of structures, right? To, to, solve a problem that, that I would argue anyway, I don't want to put words in your mouth, uh, aren't really problems, right? We're solving the wrong problems and we're building the structures of our programs to solve problems that aren't problems.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's fair, fairly put. And it's just to build on it. It comes with really severe implications that if you are one of those uh, individuals who's out of the labor market, again, for whatever reason, you know, there's a number of constraints that prevent people from from being able to to go and, and work you know, full-time or part-time or whatnot. And if you are one of those people, we have evidence that because of the, the welfare state not really being accessible for you, unless you go to work, those left out are, are more likely to face homelessness and more likely to go on and face eviction at some point. They're more likely to live in deep and extreme poverty. And this change over the last 25 years in the US has really split the low-income population into two groups. If you're able to get a job, okay, you can hang on. You're getting more and more support, but the wedge also cuts pretty harshly for those who are not able to get those jobs for, again for whatever reason, and their conditions are deteriorating more and more over the last twenty-five years as a result of these policy changes.
0: Um, so we've got right this this. I mean, obviously, you know, very unique set of circumstances. But nonetheless, we have we have government intervening in ways that that we've at least in the course of my adult life, we've been told poverty is this enormous, complicated problem. We can't really solve it. We can mess with it around the edge, but it's it's intractable. It's difficult, yada, yada, yada. And as you demonstrate, we 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 showed really clearly it's like, no, actually, we can radically reduce poverty across all groups across Racial groups, age groups, right? We can do it. We can do it quickly. We can do it effectively, and we can also, it turns out, undo it very quickly and very effectively, right? Um, so, it, it, what? Do, what are the 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 lessons that you learn in terms of, of at least the, the, the policies that we can and should, I won't, I won't make you walk through the, the politics, but just sort of talk about the policies that, that, that you think we have demonstrated. Uh, uh, what, we, what have we learned from the pandemic and how might we, we put that to use in the future?
1: Yeah, so in, in broad terms, the, the final chapter of the book puts forth 10 specific policy lessons that I think ought to be learned from the pandemic for improving economic well being moving forward. And I won't walk through all two of those here, but I'll emphasize just one or two that really speak to that decline in poverty that you're referencing. But first, I, I don't think it's appreciated enough, just the enormity of the decline that we're talking about. So the child poverty rate in the US was about 12% back in 2019. By 2021, when this expanded child tax credit was in place, there was some stimulus check provided that year, it was around 5%. It was the lowest child poverty rate in U.S. history. When we Exactly. When we create poverty measures that are comparable to other countries using a slightly different approach to measuring poverty, we find that the U.S., instead of being twice the child poverty rate as Germany, as it was before, is now on par with Germany in 2021. We find that instead of reducing child poverty with taxes and transfers at a very poor rate, worse than almost every other European country, the U.S. welfare state was temporarily reducing child poverty at the rate of Norway and Belgium with its tax and transfer system. I mean, this is, you know, I don't think eyes pop enough when I when we walk through some of these statistics and realize just how impressive the policy response was. Now, some of the policies that were implemented in the pandemic you know it's it's not like we should take you know stimulus checks and say well every three months we should give one out okay that's that's not a very feasible policy recommendation moving forward but there are some lessons that can and should be learned so one of the lessons i put forth is that expanded child tax credit in 2021 that brought child poverty rates to record low that cut food hardship that increased consumption at food uh, grocery stores and on child care Congress should strongly consider returning to that policy and, and making it permanent. Again, providing this regular cash support to the lowest income families in the country, it works. We saw clear evidence of that in 2021. And relative to a number of other programs, it's not incredibly expensive. For just over $100 billion, which is less than about one-eighth the cost of small business loans that we provided in, in, in the pandemic, we can make massive reductions in poverty to do what basically every other high-income country does in providing a, an unconditional or or pretty generous child allowance to most families with children. I argue in the book that uh, if we need to get rid of some other income support programs to help fund that, if the political balance of Congress requires that, well, then there is some... some a program that can be traded in, in my view, and not everyone will agree with this, but the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program, what's often referred to as welfare, provided very little support in the pandemic. Despite its about thirty billion dollar price tag, it, it uh, state governments barely increase the amount of tenant resources that they spend on on direct cash support the reduced child poverty by about 2% as opposed to a much uh, 15 times larger the size for the expanded child tax credit when it came out the next year. And there's a number of papers out now, some that I've been involved in showing that it's, let's say in short, a very ineffective and unequal program that's not providing much cash support for families with children, and instead is being spent in a number of other ways. There's other lessons i won't get into detail on but just to preview you know there's some implications for uh, the way we spend these pandemic era education resources and how we might ameliorate learning loss uh, with those there's some implications for how we might restructure this paycheck protection program or these small business loans to make it more effective for the next economic downturn there's some implications for the way we measure and track poverty but you know i think the single most effective strategy that we can take from the pandemic for reducing poverty is that the child tax credit that I was talking about.
0: We've uh, You make reference to this, and, and we know this from research that we've got on the earned income tax credit, which, as you said, is, is a lump sum payment that that goes to low-income families. For, for folks who are listening and saying, well, you know, you start giving cash money to low-income families, how do we know that they are going to spend it correctly? You can't see me. It's radio. I'm Doing air quotes. Um, uh, what do you what do you say about folks who have that kind of concern? If we start just giving out cash money to folks, sure. So there's two ways
1: to to approach this. There's kind of a normative take, and there's sort of an objective take. So there's a normative take that might say, well, you know, who cares? So let's let's trust that loan companies are going to use this for their best interest, to invest in their own and their children's well being, uh, and and we can be pretty confident that uh, they're able to do that. Uh, and if they occasionally use it for, I don't know, their own enjoyment or, or treating themselves to a, a nice dinner or something, then, you know, maybe that is valued value too. That's one perspective. And there can be reasonable disagreements about, you know, this this normative part, but there's an objective side and we can say, well, we ran this experiment in 2021, let's go and actually look how families with children spent this money did they spend it on what did we find any evidence of increase on on uh alcohol or tobacco or or, or gambling no we we didn't and this is not just from asking people but actually examining anonymized debit and credit card data and geolocation data to see if the child tax credit had any effect on this type of consumption we don't find evidence uh, of that in, in the work that we've done instead what we're seeing is families largely spending this surprise surprise on food on uh, clothing, on, on, on childcare, on utilities, and catching up on, on rent, and we find some pretty strong evidence. Uh, it's difficult to test this, so it's not foolproof, but we find some suggestive evidence that just labeling this as a child benefit even encourages families more to spend this on child-related goods and, and services. Um, but the evidence is pretty clear that families were largely using this on, on food, on housing and utilities, on childcare, care. Uh, and even some uh, on children's clothing. Uh, So, you know, the evidence from 2021 would suggest that the payments are working as intended and the money's going to the right place.
0: You're listening to the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Zachary Parolin about his terrific new book, Poverty in the Pandemic, Policy Lessons from COVID-19. Fresh out from the Russell Sage Foundation. Zach, thanks so much for joining us today. Much appreciated.
1: Thanks so much, Stephen. I really appreciated the conversation.